Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. And Luke chapter 23 tonight, verses 44 to 49, as we uh, come tonight to the death of Jesus upon the cross. The last two times we were in Luke together, one last fall and then last week, we heard Jesus on the cross and his, his um, prayer and his promise. Um, last fall, we heard his prayer uh, when he uh, cried out to the Father on behalf of those who condemned him, those who mocked him, and those who crucified him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then last week, we looked at the next passage where uh, we heard him make an astounding promise to that thief on the cross who started the day mocking him, yet had a change of heart and repented and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said what? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. These wonderful, gracious words of pardon and paradise, of forgiveness and life forever. The question arises, though, who is this that's promising and praying these things, and can he guarantee them? With what certainty can we be assured that he can have this prayer answered and this promise fulfilled? I mean, this is a man nailed to a cross. How can he do these things? How can he deliver uh, what he's promising? Uh, How do we know that his prayer is heard uh, and will be answered. What difference does it make if this is assured? These are the questions that we might have when we hear a weak, frail, beaten Jewish man hanging naked on a cross. And Luke answers that by telling you how we can be assured by the miraculous supernatural events that attended his death and testify to what the Father plans to do. Let me invite you to pay attention to God's word then from Luke chapter 23 beginning at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us tonight be our teacher, richly bless not only the preaching of your word, but the hearing of it. Uh, Speak, we pray, to our hearts. 
for our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we've come to the death of Jesus on the cross. What have we seen in the story of Jesus so far? We have seen the backstabber, Judas, betray him. We've seen the disciples desert him. We've seen Peter pretend not to know him. We've seen the council of leaders condemn him. The religious rejected him. We've seen Herod humiliate him. We've seen Pilate play games with him. We've seen the bystanders belittle him. We've seen the wrongdoers revile him. And we've seen the crowds cry, crucify him. Now the question we ought to ask is, what did God the Father think of his son? What did God the Father do to his son upon that cross? And what God the Father did is explain to you by the two miraculous supernatural events that attended the death of Jesus. And they are both this unnatural and supernatural darkness that attended his death, as well as the supernatural, miraculous tearing of the veil in the temple from top to bottom. And in them we see what God has done to his son. And I want you to think about those two things. And and finally, I want you to think about Jesus' own words to the Father and how we benefit by that. So three things tonight. In the first place, verses 44 to 45, we see the darkness of judgment against God's son, which assures us of pardon. You see at verse 44, as Jesus is upon the cross, Luke tells you it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light faded. There was darkness, in other words, from noon to three. Now, how do you explain that darkness? Some, looking for natural answers, have speculated that it was a Sirocco or Sirocco, I'm not even sure how you say it, a Middle Eastern sandstorm. Now, the winds of these storms can reach hurricane strength, and the sand in the air can blot out light from the sight of man. However, Jesus is dying in the wet season and not the dry season, and these things only happen in the dry season. Now, some have sought a different, they've conjectured that this was an eclipse, and that's why the sun was blocked. However, no eclipse, as we all know, lasts for three hours. And besides, this is happening at the Passover. And the Passover is tracked by the phase of the moon, and it always occurs during the time of a full moon at night, which means it's impossible for there to be a full moon at day eclipsing the light of the sun. So these natural explanations don't fit the bill. It's best to see this as something supernatural and miraculous, something with symbolic meaning. Because the way the Bible speaks of darkness, something that was unmistakable, yet verifiable. In other words, if the gospel writers were making this story up, about the death of Jesus, they wouldn't have put in here that darkness had come upon the earth for three hours in the middle of the day because it was too easy to go to Jerusalem and find somebody who had been there on that day and ask, did it get dark? And of course, you know, if it hadn't, they would have said, well, no, what are you talking about? 
But no, this actually happened, and Luke is recording it faithfully as a historian because he wants you to know that it happened. And what was it? Well, we should think theologically about darkness. We should think about the way that the Bible thinks about darkness, the way that the Jews thought about darkness. You remember one place to think of that is from the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, at the time of Moses, you remember when the children of Israel were coming out of slavery and bondage and cruel treatment under Pharaoh, and they were being released into freedom by God, there was opposition from Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, and the people of Egypt were idolaters trusting in Pharaoh and not in the true God of the Jews. And there was a contest of wills. There was a contest of rulership. Who's truly God? And part of that contest was the plagues. There were a series of escalating and increasingly uh, painful plagues upon the Egyptian nation. And you remember in Exodus chapter 10 that there, the ninth plague, right before the final tenth plague, the ninth plague was the plague of darkness, where for three days, the Bible says, there was pitch <coughs> darkness upon the face of all of Egypt, such that people couldn't even see one another, and they all had to stay in the places where they were. Everything shut down for three days because of that darkness, and that, that plague was the one that simply preceded the tenth and final and most painful plague of all, which was what? It was the plague of the death of the firstborn. The firstborn, whether born in Pharaoh's household and his own son, or whether the firstborn of the servant girl in Egypt, or whether the firstborn of cattle, the Bible says, all were going to be killed on that night as a plague against the Egyptians. And now what you have on the day that the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal and everlasting and only unique beloved Son of the Father, dying upon a cross, you have preceding his death, a plague as it were of darkness, three hours of darkness. And you and I are to see here that what is happening to the Son is that the plague of God's judgment against sin and sinners is falling upon his own beloved Son upon this cross. This is what is happening here. Jesus is bearing the wrath of God against sin and sinners on their behalf. Another place in the Bible to see this is in Amos chapter 8. One of those little prophets at the end of your Old Testament. In Amos chapter 8, in verses 7 to 10, it makes this extraordinary prophecy. It says this, The Lord has sworn... By the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. And in other words, he's saying, I know the evil deeds you have done. I know the deeds, the wicked things my people have done. I will not forget them. They're going to come back on you. And then it says, shall not the land tremble on this account? And you remember that the other gospel writers write that at the death of Jesus, one other supernatural sign was that there was an earthquake and the earth trembled at the death of Jesus. And then it goes on in Amos to say, and everyone uh, mourn who dwells in it. There's going to be mourning at this time. And what do we see in verse 48 of Luke? But 
the bystanders actually going home and beating their breast, which is a Jewish form of mourning and sorrow and grief at the spectacle of the death of the Lord Jesus. And then Amos says, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. That's again a picture of upheaval of geography, again earthquake. And now listen to this. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. And I will make it like the mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Grief for an only son lost, dead. And that's the prediction, the foretelling of Amos. And you see what Luke is saying here? This is what happened as judgment came upon the beloved son of the father. Now I realize when I say that if you're visiting Redeemer, uh, it may, I don't know how this strikes you. Uh, Here's what fire and brimstone preacher talking about wrath and judgment and anger. And you might ask, is this all we ever talk about at Redeemer? This is all I've heard from this guy for the last 10 minutes. And I assure you it's not. But where the Bible speaks of these things, we should speak of them. And, and it's true. I mean, who of us likes the idea of God being a God of wrath and judgment and justice? Uh, and, and it's so easily misunderstood because it's so easy to think, well, if God is angry, then his, angry must, his anger must be like human anger. It must be kind of like the way I get angry or my parents get angry, which is what? Uh, Capricious, whimsical, fly off the handle, emotions out of control, actions out of control, unrestrained, uh, inappropriate to what brought it about, and then self-righteous pride in the midst of the anger. That's often how human anger is expressed, but that isn't the kind of anger God has at all. We shouldn't see it in those kind of human terms. But God does have wrath, righteous indignation, and it's his settled opposition to all that is evil and his determination to punish evil. We want a God who's like that, I want to say to you, you want a God who is angry at evil. It means he's good. After all, goodness is in favor of what is good, and goodness stands against what is evil. And we want a God who cares about goodness and evil. We want a God who cares, don't we, about whether people help one another or when people hurt one another. We want a God who actually takes sides in the cause of justice and against injustice. We don't want a God who shrugs his shoulders with indifference and says, oh, well, you know, people will be like people will be. It doesn't, you know, no skin off my back. We don't want a God like that. And the cross says to you, we don't have a God like that. We have a God who does care about evil. And he is against it. He stands in step. He stands in settled opposition with a determination to punish evil. And on the cross, we find that he punished it upon his own son and in his own son and in the place of those who deserve it. 
Let me ask you this question. Do you know yourself well enough to know that you deserve to be upon that cross for your sins? And do you understand the cross of Jesus well enough and his love well enough to be grateful that Jesus is standing there in the place of sinners like you? Do you know yourself that well? Johnny Cash wrote a song that goes like this, the beast in me is caged by frail and fragile bars, restless by day, and by night rants and rages at the stars. God help the beast in me. The beast in me has had to learn to live with pain and how to shelter from the rain, and in the twinkling of an eye might have to be restrained. God help the beast in me. Sometimes it tries to kid me that it is just a teddy bear, and even somehow manage to vanish in the air. That is when I must beware of the beast in me that everyone knows. They've seen him out dressed in my clothes, patently unclear. If it's New York or New Year, God help the beast in me. We are not righteous people, friends. We need Jesus to die for our sins, and that is what this supernatural event of darkness is saying. God is judging his son for our sins. And so, you can be assured when Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that the Father was ready and willing to answer that prayer. Because it is the Father who sent his son to that cross to bear the wrath of God for the people of God upon that cross because of the love of God the Father. So that's the first thing, and and that ought to lead to security. That ought to lead to an enormous sense of relief, and you ought to be able to rest in the assurance of that. You understand that if God in justice treated his son that way for you, then God, being just, cannot and will not turn around and treat you in justice for your own sins. In other words, if he has in fact punished his son with everything sin deserves in your place and on your behalf, then he cannot and he will not punish you in your place on your behalf on account of your sins. And if he did, he'd be unjust for punishing two people for the same sins. So you are either free in Christ, sheltered in what he received on your behalf, or the Bible says if you reject him, you will find That he did not go to that cross to die and suffer your judgment on your behalf. But that judgment yet awaits you for your sins. But may it never be. There's no reason. Just shelter in Christ. Just rest. Look to believe in trust in Jesus to be your substitute. This is a place of assurance of pardon, friends. It's the supernatural event that explains the manner in which the Father forgives us yet remains just in himself. Now the second supernatural event, the tearing of the curtain, another miracle with symbolic meaning, explains how Jesus can promise paradise to the mocker who repented. Because at verse 45 it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and theologically we should understand that we have access into the very throne room of heaven through the sun because that's what that, that curtain symbolized and, and symbolically barred. I mean, after all, what was this curtain and what does it mean that it was torn in two? 
Well, this curtain is the veil that hung in the temple that divided the most holy place from the holy place or the holy of holies from the holy place. It was a thick curtain, almost an inch thick, uh, nearly as as thick as a, a man's hand. And it was tightly woven with multiple layers of thread. It would have been impossible for somebody to tear apart by themselves, ripping it in two. And yet this curtain was supernaturally torn from top to bottom. In the most holy place, what was there? In the Holy of Holies. It was the dwelling place of God on earth in the midst of his people. It was like the Garden of Eden. Ever since Adam and Eve had been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, what did God do when he kicked them out? He set at the entrance to the gate of that garden, he set cherubim, angels of some kind, with flaming swords moving this way and that to guard the way back into the place where there was the tree of life and where God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. In other words, they were banished from the enjoyable fellowship and friendship of God in the Garden of Eden. And then God decided to create for the Israelites, as it were, a little traveling Garden of Eden, where he would again manifest his presence in the midst of his people. And that's what the tabernacle was as it traveled with them. And then it became permanent in Israel in the temple. It was a kind of Garden of Eden in the sense that God dwelt there And there was a curtain with embroidered cherubim on it. And you remember that in Genesis 3, that flaming sword guarded the tree. And it basically said this, you can't come back except upon the pain of death. You can't get in through this this, uh, veil of cherubim with swords or you will die. You have no entrance here. You are not welcome here. And likewise, that curtain in the temple said stay back caution you are not welcome to waltz your way into the presence of God only one man may come only one man one day a year the high priest by my appointment God said and he can only come if he brings the blood of an atoning sacrifice the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice the blood of one who has died in his place And in the place of the people. And if he brings that blood in, then the judgment was said to have occurred. And the high priest was spared and he could come back in. Because God would see that the penalty had been paid. And all this was a lesson, friends. The whole Old Testament tabernacle system and temple worship was a way of saying, God will be with you and in the midst of you. And he will be God to you. But you don't get to waltz your way into his presence. You need to stay back. But now that curtain, as thick as a man's hand, supernaturally torn from top to bottom, now that curtain has been removed. How Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 20 says this about that curtain and Jesus. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Do you see what the writer of Hebrews is saying? 
The body of Jesus is the curtain. The curtain symbolic rep- represented the body of Jesus. And the old temple is gone now. And now Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is the place where God and sinful man meet. He is the entrance, the gateway into the very presence of God, the very true garden of God, the garden of paradise, heaven itself. So today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus can say, because I will open the new and living way through the curtain, which is my body torn for you. And everyone then who comes to God simply through faith in Christ is welcome even to come boldly and confidently, Hebrews says. We don't have to be timid. We don't have to hide. We don't have to shy. We don't have to ask ourselves, am I fit and worthy to come to my Father? I'm not fit and worthy. You're not in yourself, but Jesus is fit and worthy for you, and he opened wide the door. So draw near, the Bible says. Come, the Father says. You're welcome, the Father says. Let me ask you, are you using that access? Are you coming to the presence of the Father? Are you bringing everything to him? Why not, if not? What keeps you from coming to the Father? Is it the sense that you don't belong in his presence? Of course you don't belong. Not in yourself. Not in your unrighteous and unholiness. But think of the kind of subtle arrogance that actually lies behind that reluctance. It's a, it's a way of saying on the flip side, I could get into God's presence if I just shaped up well enough. Which is to say, I'm welcome in the presence of God if I'm righteous and good enough. Which is to say, I don't need Jesus. And God says, don't think that way. Don't think that way. Jesus is enough. He's all that you need, and you are welcome in him. One way then to come into the very throne room of heaven before the throne of grace and simply speak to your father is through prayer. And uh, in a wonderful little book about prayer by Donald Miller called The Praying Life, he says, imagine that your prayer is a poorly dressed beggar reeking of alcohol and body odor, stumbling toward the palace of the great king. You have become your prayer. It's you. That's you. And as you shuffle toward the barred gate, the guards stiffen. Your smell has preceded you. You stammer out a message for the king. I want to see the king. Your words are barely intelligible, but you whisper one final word at the, at the skepticism of all the guards. Jesus, you say, I come in Jesus' name. And at the name of Jesus, as if by magic, not by magic, but as if by magic, the palace comes alive. The guards snap to attention, bowing low in front of you. The lights come on, the door flings open. You are ushered into the palace and down a long hallway into the throne room of the great king who comes running and wraps his arms around you. Donald, and uh, I'm sorry, Paul Miller. I said Donald, different guy. Paul Miller says, the name of Jesus gives your prayers royal access. Praying in Jesus' name isn't another thing I have to get right so my prayers are perfect. And it's not a magic formula. But the point is, when you come to God in the name of Christ, 
you're welcome. It's one more gift of God because your prayers are so imperfect. You are welcome. So use your access into the very throne room of heaven before the face of your father because of the tearing of this veil. And the last thing we see here is the difference it makes for believers in life and in death. Because notice uh, the words of Jesus in verse 46 and what we may learn for that from our, for ourselves. It says, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Now, what's going on here? Well, in the first place, this is a bit of an unusual expression. It doesn't say simply that Jesus died. There was a way to say that, but he breathed his last And it's almost like Luke is saying to you, he gave up his life on the cross. And interestingly, he didn't have to have his life taken from him. It wasn't taken from him. He didn't succumb to some kind of outside pressure or some law of the universe. He freely and voluntarily and deliberately breathed his last and his soul departed his body. And that simply must be true, right? Because Jesus is, after all, God in the flesh. He gives life and breath to all things and in his timing and in his wisdom you and I depart this life uh, when he takes away our breath we die ultimately when he says in him we live and move and have our being he sustains us by the very words of his power and we live in the day and in the age and in the time and in the moment that we have and all we have is from him And so with himself, he died just exactly when he chose to. As John chapter 10, verse 17 to 18 says, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. So Jesus, uh, Jesus chose at that moment To have his spirit depart his body so that he might return to the Father and his body might be buried in the grave. And how did he die when he did that? He died trusting in his Father. He died in confidence, committing his soul and his body to the Father's care. Father, he prayed, into your hands I commit my spirit. He died knowing that he was going to return into the bosom of his own father. And Jesus, among other things, is showing us how it is that a Christian can die. What he does here ought to change the way that you think about the day of your own death. Because Jesus wins the victory over death that allows us not to be terrified of death. Paul, the apostle, says, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, it has no sin. It has no victory. Death is simply for the believer, the gateway or the portal by which we pass into bliss in the bosom of the Father. And Jesus trusted in the Father on the hour of his death, and he can give you rightfully that same kind of confidence on the day of your death. This is where, after all, I think the martyr, the first Christian martyr of all, the first persecuted and killed for believing in Jesus, this is where he got his confidence. Do you remember Stephen? Stephen, who was stoned to death, and the Apostle Paul, it says, was standing there watching. The Apostle Paul was holding the coats of the people who were killing Stephen. They cast him out of the city, 
And they stoned him, Acts chapter 7, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That sounds just like Jesus. Father, I commit myself to you. Stephen says, Jesus, I commit myself to you. Receive me. That's where you get this kind of courage. Uh, A few days before his death, F.B. Meyer uh, wrote a dear friend, he's a famous Christian of years ago, generations ago. He said, I have just heard to my great surprise that I have but a few days yet to live. It may be that before this reaches you, I shall have entered the palace. Don't trouble to write. We shall meet in the morning. You can have that kind of confidence. You can have the confidence of John Owen, the great Puritan, who when he was laying on his deathbed, recited to his secretary to be written to a friend, quote, I am still in the land of the living. And then he said, stop, change that and say, I am yet in the land of the dying, but I hope soon to be in the land of the living. That is the kind of confidence every believer in Jesus may have because we have access to the Father, to the paradise of God, where the Father dwells because the Son bore the judgment we deserve that we might be forgiven. Put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, richly bless to our hearts these truths and grant us to believe and to make use of our access to you. Forgive us our failures to do so, our unbelief, our reluctance, our foolish pride. Humble us because you oppose the proud but are gracious to the humble. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Thank <laughs> you.